privilege today, and uh, you know, I was observing Pastor Sammy as he was sharing, you and I have got pretty much the same haircut. <laughs> yeah, except I eliminated mine on, this, on the top, and you kept yours on the top. So uh, how many can see the resemblance there? You know, if I had looked as cool as him when I was a youth pastor, uh, you know, I don't know what I'd have done. I'd not got much work done. I'd have had uh, lots of distractions because I was single at the time. So, uh, but great. You, you know, you all have got a great pastoral team. Uh, know every one of them, and God has blessed you. And one of the ways that you know you've got a, a star for a pastor is that he loves to surround himself with quality, competent people who can do good ministry. And uh, that's a good, good sign. And uh, your pastor and his wife, Dan and Marcia, are dearly loved across uh, this network in the area, uh, the greater, uh, I was going to say greater Akron area, this is the east central area. Uh, for the Assemblies of God, I think you probably know that uh, Pastor Dan served as our presbyter here and probably would continue in that role uh, had he not himself decided to step away and and uh, provide an opportunity for someone else to uh, be part of that leadership team. Uh, but they are loved. Uh, I, I view Dan and Marsha as, as pastors of pastors, leaders of leaders, shepherds of shepherds. And uh, thank you for honoring the commitment, the energy, the sacrifice, the devotion that they have expended in leading you some 20 years. I don't know, I've lost track of how many, how many years exactly has Pastor Dan been here. 27 years. That's amazing. When he hits 30 and you guys have a celebration, I want an invitation because I want to be here to celebrate that. That's just awesome. And uh, God's favor you with great leadership. I love what I feel here and see this morning. You know, anytime you go into a church and people are sitting in the front row when there's other seats available, that's a good sign. How many know that? And I guarantee you the people that are sitting in the front row tonight at the Super Bowl paid a pretty penny to be there, and uh, you all came in and got the best seats in the house. Leroy, congratulations, man. You got one of the best seats in the house. Awesome. Awesome. Pastor Sammy mentioned Synergy, and Synergy is a all-church leadership development day that is hosted by the Ohio Ministry Network of the Sons of God. If you can be part of that, you'll be joining six or 700 leaders from all across Ohio, serving in areas of children's ministry, youth ministry, men's and women's ministry, missions ministry, outreach, outreach ministry, media ministry, worship ministry, whatever ministry you do, there, is a, there will be a workshop track for you, and you can get online and check that out. In fact, I think you can even pre-register for the exact breakout sessions that you want to attend. And for $15... My word. How many have ever gone to a, a one-day seminar related to your work? How many paid more than $15? How many paid $30? How many paid $100? Look at this. Uh, no kidding, man. I'd say it's amazing. And uh, it's a great day. There'll be a great opportunity for you to, to gain and to be blessed by that. So thanks for considering that. Uh, you know, I just wanted to make a few comments about uh, the sabbatical. Our presbytery encourages all of our churches when pastors have completed at least six years of pastoral ministry, and uh, Pastor Dan uh, quadrupled that, that uh, they be extended the opportunity to take a sabbatical. You know, the word sabbatical is a Bible word. It has to do with rest. And I think most of you know this, but let me remind you that uh, ministry, professional ministry, serving as a pastor, 
is one of the highest risk professions there is. In fact, we're told by those that study pastoring that only 10% of the leaders who begin their career pastoring will finish their career pastoring, 10%. There's a lot of reasons for that. Perhaps along the way, the Lord directed folks uh, into other areas of, of work and ministry, and that's fine. But I can tell you from my experience that there are a lot of other reasons, and many of them have to do with uh, pastors that just get worn out and are tired and carrying the burden. I don't know if you remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he wrote about all the adversity he faced. He talks about being beaten, have stones thrown at him, and being shipwrecked. But then at the end of that whole list, he says, but above all, daily I carry a burden for the churches. Paul said, in spite of the physical danger that I face, on a regular basis, the greatest burden I have is for the souls of the men and women that God has called me to lead. There are a lot of high-pressure professions. Your doctor's in a high-pressure profession. A politician's in a high-pressure profession. But the ministry is unique because not only are there the pressures that come with leading people, shaping people, guiding people, preaching and teaching to people, but there is the continual weight that you're doing that for an eternal outcome. And that makes it different. It's high stakes. So the pressure of that, the weight of that, uh, is something that to have a two-month reprieve from, to be able to just chill out, relax, uh, enjoy, get refreshed. You know, if you've taken a two-week vacation, you've had the experience like I have, perhaps, of getting to the end of the two weeks and saying, man, I'm just finally kind of unwinding, and now would be a good time to have a vacation. And that happens to pastors, to ministers. And and so giving uh, them this extended time is uh, certainly warranted, deserved, and I know will be a great blessing to them and to you folks. Well, today is a big day in America. How many know what today is? Super Bowl day. How many are cheering for the Falcons? All right. How many for the Patriots? All right. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you to participate with me in a poll this morning because I saw this week in the USA Today this article, and it's titled, Is There Divine Interest in Sports? Faithful say yes, that God has a Super Bowl pick. Does I have his eye on the gridiron? Will he cheer for either the Falcons or the Patriots in Super Bowl 51 on Sunday? All right, before I tell you how many Americans think that he does, that he has a pick, and he's going to be rooting for one team or the other, I'm going to ask you. How many of you think God has a pick for the Super Bowl? God has a preference. God has a will. Not that he, not that he, does, that he knows, because we know he knows who's going to win, but believe that he has a will, a specific will, about the outcome of the Super Bowl. All right? We got one, okay. Were you a Patriots fan or a Falcons fan? Bro. Hey, let's stop and pray right now. Let's stop and pray. All right, one. Well, you guys aren't near the national norm because nationally, this poll indicated that one quarter, 25% of all Americans believe that God does have his eye on the gridiron and he has a will related to a survey or as a result of a survey released Monday by the Public Religion Research Institute. Pretty amazing. And that's just slightly less then the number, 28%, who believe that God had a major role in placing Donald Trump in the White House. 
Now, if I ask you about that, all of our hands would go up, I think, because it is God, the Bible says, that sets kings in their place and takes them off their place, all right? And God even sets up the ungodly kings, okay? God's in charge of all of that. So the Bible teaches us that. But I'm not sure about football. But when it comes to what God is really interested in, what's on the heart of God, the mind of God, it's, it's pretty clear, isn't it? When Jesus came to this world, he said it over and over and over and over again in many, many different ways. In the book of Matthew, he said this, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Matthew 24, Jesus says this, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in his name for a witness to all nations, and then the end would come. And in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said, All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. You think that's the divine interest of God? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and surely... I will be with you even until the end of the age. Sounds like divine interest to me. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is quoted as saying, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And in Mark 16, 15, his words are recorded, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Divine interest. Luke 19, 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. In Luke 24, 47, in repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Sounds like divine interest to me. John 3, 16, many of you know that one. That God loved the world and gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And in John 20, 21, Jesus, after the resurrection, the first thing that he says to the disciples is, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And then we come to Acts chapter 1. What do we read there? The disciples are concerned about things that are happening in their society, in their culture, the domination of Rome. And when, when, when is God going to lift the hand of the oppressing nation of Rome? Which is a good question to ask if you're under the subjugation of another nation. But what does Jesus say to them? Jesus says it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that God has put in his power, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now I've just cited the cases where Jesus, just before leaving this world, articulates what is on the heart and the mind of God. I love the way Peter writes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says there, God is not willing that any should perish, but is long-suffering to us. Because God wants all to come to repentance. That's the divine interest of God. I stopped and looked at your missions board back there today. Thank you for all you're doing to invest in missionaries who are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you've got prayer cards on there, I'm presuming, for missionaries that you give to monthly and that you pray for on a regular basis. And, man, I commend you for that. Thanks for doing your part. But really, missions isn't optional if you're a Christian. 
Because Jesus said we're to go to the ends of the earth, just as he said we're supposed to reach our Jerusalem. So you're undertaking one of the great responsibilities of the Great Commission when you invest in these that God has sent to go. So we support those that, that are on mission globally. And the Assumptions of God has missionaries and missionary activity in some 253 countries, territories, and provinces of the world. Now stop and think about that. 253 countries, territories, and provinces of the world. This movement that you and I are part of, the Assumptions of God, has ministry and missionary activity happening. That's phenomenal. You know why? Here's one barometer. There are about 190 member nations of the United Nations. Yet God has helped us to take the gospel to 253 places of the world. That's incredible. And we're told by our researchers that every 29 seconds, somewhere in the world, somebody is coming to faith in Jesus Christ as a result of Assemblies of God missionary ministry. Do the math. That's about 2,500 a day. And the missionaries that you support, the Rostifers, the Thackers, the Grosses, others that are serving the Lord. I saw the Lowenbergs picture up there, the Bowsers in Peru. Those folks are people that are building the kingdom as a result of our partnership. So we support those that God has called to go globally. But I want to talk to you today about our role locally, and that is that you and I are to serve the mission locally. Every one of us. There's no exceptions when it comes to allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us to build God's kingdom in Louisville, Ohio. There's none. Jesus didn't make any exceptions in the word when he made, shared these directives, but every one of his disciples, every one of his followers was expected to take the authority that he had given them, to take the gospel, to go where God had called them to go, to share Christ and to see disciples made and the church planted. And if you look at the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. So if God's not called you to go to Africa or Asia or Mongolia, if he's not called you to go to Latin America, then guess what? You're right where you're supposed to be. And because you're here, God wants you to make a difference here. And what I've observed, I pastored a church that we planted. I pastored there for about 20 years in the Columbus area. And what I've observed is that many Christians, many Assemblies of God Christians, many Pentecostal Christians, many Charismatic Christians are not living at their capacity. They're kind of making their way through their Christian life. They're getting along. They're overcoming temptation most of the time. But... Oftentimes, they are not open to and allow, allowing the Holy Spirit to infuse in them his interest and then moving forward with that in their community. How many would say there's somebody in my neighborhood that needs Jesus? There's somebody in my extended family that needs Jesus. There's somebody where I work that needs Jesus. There's probably somebody at the grocery store where I shop and the place where I buy my gas and other places that I do business that needs Jesus. Can I tell you, if it was Jesus' mission to seek and save the lost, then it's my mission to seek and save the lost. It's my role. It's my responsibility. So I want to talk to you today about how you can capitalize on your capacity. 
most human beings go through life, not just in the areas of spiritual life, but in general, not tapping their capacity, not living at their potential. My son Nathan now is 29, but when he was eight years old, we were seated at the table in the, in the kitchen, and uh, we were having a, a conversation that I brought up from time to time, and that conversation was, Nathan, what do you want to do when you grow up? How many have done that a few times or more with your children? All right? It's kind of fun. I was always interested in, in knowing if something had changed since the last conversation we had. And along the way, he wanted to be an engineer, and he wanted to be a, he actually wanted to be a pastor at one point, and then he said he wanted to be a teacher, and, and then he wanted to be a police officer. And on this particular day when I said, Nathan, what do you want to do when you grow up? He said, Dad, he said, I want to play in the NBA, the National Basketball Association. Now, I'm not real bright, but I had seen my son play sports. He didn't really have a body for the NBA. He wasn't really a jumper. And I thought, well, I don't want to discourage this boy, you know, take the dream right, off, right out of his hand, but uh, maybe we need to bring a little reality to this conversation. So I thought for a minute, and I thought, okay, here's how I can do it. So I said, son, how many, how many people are on the NBA team? He said, oh, 14 or 15, Dad. I said, well, let's use 15. I said, how many teams are, the NBA, are there in the NBA? And I think at the time there may be 30 teams or so. I said, so what's 30 times 15? He said, Dad, that's hard. I said, well, let's figure it out. So we did a little bit of long multiplication. 450. I said, that means, Nathan, that an average of nine players come from every state. And probably, if you're going to be one of the nine in Ohio, you're going to have to get a scholarship to play basketball at Ohio State University. And I said, there aren't too many people that get to do that. In fact, in our high school, there had never been one. So I told him that. I said, so we can work toward your dream, but just in case being in the NBA doesn't work out, I said, what would you like to do? He said, Dad, that's easy, really easy. I said, oh, great. I said, what would you like to do? He said, Dad. I want to work at Wendy's. <laughs> All right. So I wasn't so sure that I did the right thing by having that conversation that day. He doesn't work at Wendy's today. He's got something else going on. But uh, he, he certainly was capable, as I think most of us are, uh, of doing something other than that. Now, the reality is that you and I live at a place where, for multiple reasons, we don't hit that capacity. We live at a level below where God can really use us. There's a lot of reasons for it. A lot of reasons that we feel weak and unprepared. Perhaps at times we're fearful. And if you're feeling that, if you felt that, uh, you're in pretty good company. Uh, because I read the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, when he knew that God was calling him to go to Corinth. Now, if you know much about the Bible, and you've studied maybe in your Sunday school classes, you know that Corinth was a wicked city. It was a, a city near the port. Uh, it was full of idolatry, of sexual immorality. In fact, you read the book of 1 Corinthians, and you think, are these people saved? I mean, they had some problems. And that was really just a microcosm of, of what was happening in their culture, and you can presume the culture was a whole lot worse. So when God called Paul and said, I want you to go to Corinth, you can understand why 
He didn't say, yes, Lord, I'll be on the next ship there. The next caravan there. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find out how he felt. Let me read it for you. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Let's pause there for a minute. It's Paul's writing to a church that he had wanted to go visit for some time, but hadn't been able to get there. He says to them, when I finally arrived, finally arrived, he said, I was full of fear. I was weak. I was even trembling. If you read the narrative in Acts chapter 16, when Paul comes to Corinth, he felt that way for good reason. Because there we find out in Acts chapter 16 that when Paul got into Corinth, he began to teach in the synagogue, which was his, his method of operation. He would go and teach that Jesus was Messiah and, and hopefully see some Jews convert with which they could start a church. And that didn't happen there. In fact, it says that the people in the synagogue spoke abusively to, the, to him. And finally, he left the synagogue and went to a house next door and began to lead a Bible study, and that's how the church began. But he knew before he went there that he would not be received well. And I think all of us have had those experiences where we maybe know somebody needs the Lord, we sense there's a need, someone around us in our lives, but yet there's a weakness because we're not sure how we might be received. And Paul said, I was committed, if I was coming to you, that I could not depend upon my ability, my speaking ability, and the list of Paul's resume is in Philippians chapter 3. He had an impressive one. He's very intelligent, highly regarded as a student, as a teacher. But he says, as good as my skills were, I knew I couldn't depend on them. I knew that the only thing that could make a difference when I got to Corinth was the power of God. The demonstration of God's power. And then he continues on here. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So Paul is simply saying that the people who killed Jesus wouldn't have done it if they had had the insider information. He said there's wisdom that God has contained from the beginning of the world until now. He's finally revealed it to us. He's unsealed that mystery for us. But there are many, many people in our world, including the people that put Jesus to death, that didn't have or don't have this inside wisdom. And he said that the wisdom, when it's revealed, is revealed so that the glory of God can be manifest. The glory of God, the person of God, the character of God, the presence of God, the power of God. And then he makes this statement, quoting from the Old Testament, However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 
but God has revealed it to us by the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Now, many times we read verse 9, and we stop. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. We pause and we say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Isn't heaven going to be wonderful? You know what? Heaven is going to be wonderful. But Paul's not writing about heaven here. What he's saying is that there are things in the heart of God, the mind of God, the thoughts of God, the plans of God, the interests of God, that he wants to communicate to us. Isn't that what we just read? Our eye can't see it, our ears can't hear it, our mind can't conceive or dream of it, think of it. What God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. So what the spirit wants us to know through what Paul has written here is that when we face in our world challenges to our confidence, Barriers to our belief about the possibilities of God. Fear about what people might say and think if we share with them about the power of Jesus and the saving grace of Jesus. He says, just hold on. Because God has prepared something that he wants to reveal to you. This is critical. This is so important. For you and I who are filled with the Spirit of God to understand that on a daily basis God's abilities are available to us. And we have capacity that aligns with the greatness, the majesty, the awesomeness, and the power of God. And it's like Paul said, it's not because of us. Oh no, it's not our abilities, it's not our skills, it's not our personality, it's not our winsomeness, it's not our understanding or knowledge of the Word of God. It's because God, by His Spirit, can reveal to us things that He wants to do in the lives of people around us. And when He does, the power of God is demonstrated and lives are changed. Absolutely, that's what can happen. Now, I've shared a little bit with you about missions, and God's doing amazing things around the world. But a couple of years ago, I was talking to one of our missionaries in the Congo, missionary Gary Dickinson, and they had planted a church there in Pointe Noire, and God was giving them favor. The church was growing, and they were having Wednesday night services, and, and, and people were coming to faith in Jesus. And, and on one particular Wednesday night, a young, a young girl, Julie, came into the service, she had never heard the gospel presented clearly and never been invited to give her heart to Jesus. And at the end of the service, she came forward, and, and as they were praying with her, somebody noticed there was something unusual about one of her eyes. And so they said to Julie, Julie, they said, uh, is there something wrong with your eye? And she said, yeah, I've been blind in that eye since I was seven. And one of those prayer leaders continued to pray, and the Holy Spirit said to him, I want to heal Julie's eye. So he stopped everybody who was praying and said, we believe, I believe that God wants to heal Julie's eye tonight. And they prayed, and you know how it is at the end of an altar service, you know, there's just a few people standing, they, they kept praying, they kept praying. About an hour later, Julie opened her eye and she said, I can see, I can see, I can see clearly out of both of my eyes. Now that's great, that's awesome. 
But here's what I like, the rest of the story. That Sunday, Julie's family with her in church, was with her in church. And that Sunday, a family came to faith in Jesus. You see, that's why God does miracles, to show who Jesus is. And God revealed to that prayer leader in that moment something that he wanted to do, something that he had prepared. And I want to suggest to you today that if you're prepared for what God has prepared for you, you will see God reveal himself through you. How's it happen? Let's draw three simple, simple directives from this passage. The first directive is this. We've got to trust God to show up. Trust him to show up. And what I've learned in life, and I've been serving Jesus a long time, what I've learned is that if I'm not focused on the active presence and engagement of God in my life, I ignore it. That's my reality. And I think many Christians are like that. So it's so important that every day and every opportunity of every day that we become aware that Jesus is there. It begins with our communication with him, and that's why I think it's so important to pray in the morning. The psalmist said, early will I seek you. It gives us a focus for the day, and it's good to pray while we're driving to work, and it's good to pray while we're, while we're awaiting an appointment. And not just pray, God, help me, but God, help me to help the people that I'm around today. Maybe that's why the, Paul wrote in Thessalonians, Pray without ceasing. Because when I'm talking to you, I can hardly ignore the fact that I'm talking to you and that you're there. And the same thing with Jesus. When I'm communicating with him, when I'm aware that he's with me, perhaps I've got an ability to trust him, to be present, to show up, to demonstrate himself in a real way. So trust God to show up. There's a great example of this, I think, in Acts chapter 3. comes on the heels, of course, of Acts chapter 2. That makes sense, doesn't it? The end of Acts chapter 2, we see that uh, 3,000 people were added to the church as a result of uh, the first sermon that we, was recorded that, uh, for us in the New Testament after the coming of, uh, the, Pentec of the Holy Spirit. And then it says that all the, the people continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in prayer and the sharing of the word. And then there's a little verse that's easy to ignore in that passage, but to me, when you get to chapter 3, it really jumps out. And that phrase is that every day they met in the temple courts. So the people of God, a brand new church of 3,000 people, are meeting in each other's homes, they're meeting the needs of one another, and then they're coming to the temple courts to pray together, to worship together. And when you get to Acts chapter 3, we read this story of the, the healing of a, a crippled man. And the interesting thing about this story to me is that the scripture says that when Peter and John were going to the temple to pray, 3 o'clock in the afternoon at the hour of prayer, that there was a man there who every day was brought to the temple courts. He was brought there to beg. He couldn't work, so he was hopeful of receiving alms from those that were going into the temple. So every day, Peter and John and the other disciples are going to the temple, and every day this man is laying there. How many think it's very possible that 
This isn't the first time that they saw him the day that this miracle happened. That's what really jumped out at me just a, a couple of years ago. I saw that and I thought, you know what? This miracle could have happened before it happened. But there was something about that day, something about that time, something about that moment, and I've got a hunch it had something to do with the fact that this miracle really put the church on the map because it got them into the courts, and Peter and John ended up in prison, and everybody was praying for them, and you know that at that point everybody in Jerusalem was aware that something incredible had happened. But the timing was important. And so as they see this man sitting there and he sees them, I love the way the Bible says it. It says that that they saw him and he saw them, but then they looked at him after he said to them, do you have any silver or gold? Can I have some money? You remember their response, we don't have any silver and gold. We don't have that, but what we do have, we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, rise up and walk. The Bible says that the man began leaping and praising God and many, many others were impacted because of that miracle. I want to suggest to you that when you look at somebody that's crippled and say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, you better be trusting in God. And you better be operating with what I referred to earlier as insider information. I don't know about you, but I've passed a few cripples in my life. And never once did I dare to say to them, stand up and walk. I've prayed for people that had needs. There are a few times that I felt the Holy Spirit told me those folks were already healed, and I prayed differently. I thanked Jesus for healing them, and those cases, it turned out that they were. But if God hasn't told me I'm not going to say to a person that's laying on the ground, stand up and walk. How does God tell us? That's the insider information, isn't it? We call them the charismata, the gifts of the Spirit. They're listed in in 1 Corinthians 12. Wisdom and knowledge and faith and miracles and gifts of healing and power and prophecy and tongues and interpretation of tongues. All things that God uses to give us some information, perhaps about what he wants to do. Now, oftentimes we utilize those in the context of worship. Somebody will give a word of prophecy or perhaps a word of wisdom or knowledge. A tongue or interpretation of tongues, and that's good. It's it's appropriate for that to happen in here. But if you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that it happened out there. You'll find that the miracles were happening in the streets, in the temple courts. And I want to suggest to you that you and I need to be fully aware that God is fully with us wherever we are and listening to the prompting of his spirit. Because who knows that God might want to heal that co-worker and say to you, pray, I want to heal that person right now. Pray for that eye, I'm going to heal it today. Pray for that back. I want to heal it right now. Pray for that person's loved one because I've got a miracle for them. That's the Holy Spirit. 
And if you and I are trusting in God that he's going to show up, that he's going to be present, and when he does, he's going to be powerful, there'll be a demonstration of his power that will bring focus and attention to Jesus. I think that's the way God wants us to live. His Holy Spirit helping to capitalize on our capacity. I read recently of a young man who went to a high school retreat for his church. Great to see all these students down here today and some back through here. But they had a high school retreat. They went away from, from their town and went into a retreat center and the theme was on the Holy Spirit. And they were challenged with that retreat. When you start school, the very first day of school, on your way to school, you pray, God, who do you want me to help today? Who do you want me to love today? Who do you want me to speak to today? Who do you want me to serve today? And so when the first day of school came, Eric walked up to the first door that he was going to open, and he was praying that prayer. God, who do you want me to touch today, to speak to today? And at the other end of the long corridor, there was another door, and there was another young man coming in that door. And the closer they got, Eric said he felt the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to talk to him. I want you to touch him. And then he felt the Spirit say, I want you to give him your $5 lunch money. And Eric said, I was starting to tremble because that boy was known all around our school as the angry atheist. He was notorious. He said, here I am the first day I'm going to put into practice what God's told us to do, and I've got to go to the angry atheist. And he walked up to this young man, and he said, you know, I don't know you. My name's Eric. And the young man didn't even reach out his hand to shake his hand. He said, but I just felt when I saw you come down the hall that I was to come up and say hello and give you, give you $5. And the boy suddenly took notice, and he said to him, how did you know I didn't have any money today? He said, my family's going through a really hard time and there's no money for lunch. Another week or two later, Eric saw that young man and they had just a brief conversation. They eventually changed phone, exchanged phone numbers and began to text back and forth. I'll shorten the story just to say in about a year, he went to Eric's youth group with him and the angry atheist became a happy follower of Jesus Christ. Because some young teenager, some teenager said, God, you're going to be with me today. Trust him. Trust God to show up. The second thing that's important is that we tune in and listen up. Now, if God has a message for me, God wants to reveal something to me, then it's pretty obvious that I've got to be listening, right? How many husbands would say, my wife thinks I'm the greatest listener in the world? All right. Sometimes, guys, I think we treat our, the Lord like we treat our wives. We just keep reading, reading the paper or watching TV when she's trying to talk to us. Yep, I did that just yesterday. My wife's trying to talk to me, and I'm trying to watch the end of a basketball game on television. She looked at me, and she said, are you going to listen to me? And I said, sure, honey. And I turned to her, but I saw one ear turn toward the... <laughs> Bad, that was not good. But tune in and listen up. I told you about Julia. 
I told you about the angry atheist. Those things happened because somebody was not only trusting God, but tuned in and they had the word of the Lord. They understood what it was that God wanted to do. When I was growing up, I was in children's church with Sister Hawk. Sister Hawk was a classic. Sister Hawk was about five feet five, and she was robust. She had her hair in a bun. And she had, a, she had flannel graph stories that could keep the wildest of kids' attention. We had this little kid in our Sunday school class named Jimmy. And let me tell you, Jimmy was a hellion. That's just the way it was. If I ever got in trouble at church, it was with Jimmy. All right? He was rambunctious. He was antsy. And boy, when Sister Hawk would get out those little flannel graph figures and start telling a story on that flannel graph board, everybody paid attention, including Jimmy. How many know what a flannel graph board is? I just got to help you here. All right, so I got a few young folks that don't. So a flannel graph board is this, like a white board, only it's covered with flannel. And they've got these little figurine people made out of paper that have like felt on the back of them, kind of like a Velcro concept, all right? So you got these people, little figures, and you stick them on while you're telling the story, all right? So Sister Hawk used to tell all the great stories, but I can still remember her telling the story of Samuel in the temple. Remember how he fell asleep one night? He heard somebody calling his name. And he just assumed it was Eli, the priest, that was his mentor there in the temple. So he got up out of bed, and I love the way 1 Samuel 3 says, he ran to where Eli was. And he said, hey, hey, here I am, here I am, you called me. And Eli said, oh, man, I, I didn't call you. Go back to bed. So I don't know what Samuel thought. He went back to bed, thought he was hearing voices, and Sure enough, he was, because he heard it again. And he got up, and he went to Eli. It's interesting. The second time, it says he went to Eli. It doesn't say he ran to Eli. And so Eli says, I didn't call you. He said, go back to bed. And it happened a third time. Finally, the priest, Eli, figures out what's going on. And he says, the next time you hear that voice, say, Lord, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. All right? And Samuel went back to bed, and sure enough, the voice came again. And that's what he said. Lord, your servant is listening. And you read the rest of 1 Samuel chapter 3. God gave him a message that he was to preach the rest of his prophetic life and ministry. But it began with him listening and recognizing the voice of the Lord. Now let me just put a parenthesis here and say, I'm really glad that God doesn't expect us to get it all the time the first time. He's patient, remember? In fact, if you look at that verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, it says he's patient with us, not willing that any should perish. Peter is writing to the church. He's saying God is being patient with us because he has a world full of people that need him. And even though we mess it up from time to time, he's with us. He's helping us. He's going to give us a second or third chance if we don't get the message the first time. So sure enough, that happens. That was Samuel's experience. 
all of us from time to time find ourselves having neglected to hear or respond to the word of the Lord. I was walking on the boardwalk near Los Angeles, California several years ago. How many have ever heard of a place called Muscle Beach? All right, I didn't really belong there. The people that go there have got like muscles the size of my thighs, all right? They got this kind of chained in area where they have all these free weights and they're down there. Everybody's walking by, you know, and looking at them impressed. And, you know, when you got to lift weights out in the middle of God and everybody to, to feel good about it, I think you got another problem. Just saying. So, but anyway, they're down there and we're just, where I was up on the boardwalk walking, I was actually with a team of uh, folks that were out there. We were doing some evangelism. And so I walked by this gentleman, and uh, he was a big guy, probably 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, he was an African-American man. And uh, as I walked past him, I sensed the spirit saying, go back and talk to that guy. And I'd like to tell you that I went back and talked to that guy, but I kept walking. I walked a little further, and the impression didn't go away. It just got stronger. And so I started making excuses like, Lord, you know, I'm in charge of this group of people that are out here, and I told them to meet me at a certain time at a certain place, so i got to be there. That's important, Lord. And he wasn't buying my excuse, so a few steps later, I felt it again. I finally turned around, and by this time, I was probably 50 yards or so away from him, and I, so I jogged a little bit to get up close, and when I got kind of close, I started walking, and I got up beside him, and I looked up, and I said, hey, how you doing? He says, I'm good. How you doing? I said, I'm okay. I said, uh, you know, I just walked past you a, a few minutes ago, and I felt like I should come back and talk to you. And he stopped. He said, about what? I said, well, let me tell you why I'm here. I was going to kind of ease into this, all right? I'm here because I've got a group of people with me, and we're, we're just walking up and down the beach, the boardwalk, and we're, we're just sharing with people about, and he interrupted me. He said, let me guess about Jesus Christ. I said, how'd you know? He said, oh, I know. He said, you're the third person in the last two months. He said, my grandmother is praying again. <laughs> and I said, today's your day. He said, you're right. I sat down on a bench there and opened to 1 John chapter 1. Began to work through that passage about him being the light. And that all of us have darkness, but he's the light that dispels it. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth of God is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I looked over. I said, you're ready to pray, aren't you? He said, absolutely. And there on that bench, with hundreds and hundreds of people milling around, walking around, lots of activity, I had the pleasure of praying with a young man from the East Coast 
who went to California because he couldn't be a good sinner around his God-fearing family. And that day he came back into the kingdom of Jesus. Thank God God's patient with us. And if we'll just listen and keep listening, what he's prepared can be revealed and experienced. Tune in and listen up. Let me illustrate something real quickly before I move on. A couple of years ago, I was driving north on I-71. I was listening to the Buckeyes basketball team, all right? Not near as good as football, but I'm a fan. So I was listening to a game, and I had watched it, about half of it at the house, and then I had to leave for a meeting up in the Cleveland area. So I got in the car, and I began to drive, and I was listening to the game on the radio. And, and the Buckeyes and the other team were going back and forth, back and forth. It was the end of the season. It was going to determine whether or not they might win the conference championship. And just about the time the game was going to come down to those final, final moments of decision, the static began to come into my radio. And I thought, you know what, this is horrible. I've spent two hours either watching or listening to this game, and now I'm not going to get to hear the end of it. I mean, I had a real crisis going on. <laughs> and so I, so I had a decision. What, was I going to turn the tuner and try to find another station that would give me a clearer signal? Or was I going to hope that I was at the top of a hill and at the critical moment I could hear the announcer? Because here was the reality. The announcer was still talking from Value City Arena in Columbus. The flagship station was still broadcasting the signal from their tower. The problem was I was getting farther and farther and farther away from the signal. And the strength of that signal was no longer able to give me a clear, consistent message. You get the point? If we're going to be tuned in and listening up, we need to have a proximity with the presence of Jesus that will enable us to hear him when he speaks. Stay close to him. The scripture says that if we draw nigh to God, that he'll draw near to us. But it also says we can't come with dirty hands and a filthy heart. So we confess our sin. We come into a place of humility, of surrender. We clean the channel and then we say, Lord, I'm in your presence. Speak to me. I'm listening. The third directive I want to point out from this passage is not only should we trust God to show up and tune in and listen up, but we need to take action and keep up. Take action. That was obviously what the Apostle Paul did. Because as I told you, when he went to Corinth, you can read in Acts 16, he was opposed. He was basically thrown out of the synagogue. But he didn't give up. He kept up. He could have left town. In fact, at one point, Jesus said, if they don't hear what you have to say, hey, you've got the prerogative, kick the dust off your feet and go on to the next village. And there were times that Paul did that in Acts. But he didn't do that at Corinth. Instead, he went to the house next door of, the, of the, uh, a man who lived there, and lo and behold, the ruler of the synagogue came over and got involved in his Bible study, and he got saved. 
Now think about that, the ruler of the synagogue. The most powerful Jewish man in the city got saved. Not while Paul was teaching in the synagogue, but when Paul went next door to the house to have a Bible study. Now, had Paul said when he left the synagogue, you know what, these people, if they don't love, want to hear about Jesus, I'm just moving on. But something in him said, don't give up, keep up. The Spirit said, stay here, Paul. And Paul stayed there. And as a result of that, the church was born in a powerful way. And he stayed there some 18 months. He trained Aquila and Priscilla to lead the church, and then he finally moved on. But it wouldn't have happened if he wouldn't have kept at it. If he wouldn't have stayed there when God said stay. Take action and keep up. You see, the reality is that for many, many people in our lives, it may take more than just one conversation, more than one message. We face adversity in our lives. People are watching us. And the message of Jesus becomes louder than it ever does and ever will be when you're going through a tough time, you're holding on to Jesus, and hope resonates from your heart, not fear. Confidence and courage, trust in God. Several years ago, we were pastoring. We had a young couple in our church who, uh, she got pregnant after many years of, of them trying to conceive. Uh, she was finally pregnant with their first child. And just two or three months into the pregnancy, she got a very bad report from, uh, from the doctor. And that was the child that was forming in her womb was being formed without a skull. And there was no way, that doctor said, medically speaking, naturally speaking, no way that that child could be viable outside the womb. And he counseled this young couple to, to have an abortion. And they said, we're not going to do that. We'll trust God. God can form a skull on that baby's head. Or if not, we'll trust God that he wanted to bring that baby into his presence immediately. So they went all the way through that pregnancy, and I was at the hospital the day that she delivered that, that little one, and sure enough, it was born without a skull. It lived just a, a matter of seconds before it expired, the baby expired. Heartbreaking. You can imagine the agony, the pain. We did a memorial service at the church for that little one. room was packed, packed with people from Kevin's workplace. And after the service, I talked to his boss, who was one of the high-ranking commercial vice presidents in National City Bank, now PNC Bank. I talked to her out in the hallway. I'd known her previously because she had done the loans for our building. And so I walked up to her. She was just standing, looking at the picture we had there in the lobby. I said, Lynn, how are you? She said, I think I'm okay, but there's something really troubling to me. I said, why? What's that? She said, 
I've watched Kevin come to work every day with a confidence in God, with a joy in his heart, with faith in God, and knowing that this was the likely outcome. She said, I have had a, I've known God a long time. She told me where she went to church and all the years. She said, I don't have that kind of faith. I don't have that kind of relationship with God. And I want that. And right there in the lobby of that church, when pretty much everybody else had left, we prayed and Lynn invited Jesus to be her personal Lord and Savior. Why? Well, of course, the Spirit was wooing her, but she had seen something. Something demonstrated in the life of a follower of Jesus that was compelling, that drew her. A demonstration of the Spirit of God. Take action and keep up. Keep your faith strong. And when adversity comes, allow it to be an occasion, an opportunity for the goodness of God to be demonstrated. And if the miracle you're praying for doesn't happen the way you think it ought to happen, the way you respond to that disappointment will send a loud and clear message to everybody around you about who Jesus is to you. It's wonderful to celebrate the miracle. And people are often won through miracles. We've been talking about that today. But oftentimes, people are greatly impacted when you and I as believers face and go through adversity and end up taking the bitter pill, the less, the least desired outcome with joy, confidence in Jesus. Young man was born into a village town in Kenya. He grew up and he went on to a Bible college there and he was taught by some some has got missionaries and after he graduated from bible school there he felt in his heart that god was calling him to go to a village up in the northern part of of kenya some distance from where he lived and so he began to think and pray about taking the gospel for the first time ever to that little village And he went to his teachers, the missionary leaders, and said, you know what, I feel like God's calling me to go and start a church up in this this little village called Nagali. And they said, well, if you feel like God's calling you to do that, we'll pray with you about that. When he went home and told his family, they were upset. They said, you could be a pastor at a church near us, but... Why would you go so far? And why would you go where there isn't a church? And why would you go by yourself? And all Paulo knew was that that's what God had asked him to do. So after several weeks of praying, he one day on Saturday morning got up and he walked eight hours to Nagali. He went into the little village and he began to share with the people that He was going to have a a service. He was going to teach them about God. And 
he invited them to come out the next morning. He went back out to where he was going to have the service. He cleared a little place on the ground, and he went to sleep under the stars. Next morning, he woke up, and at the announced time of the service, some children had come out from the village, but that was all, just some children. And so he had a service, and he, he sang some songs, and he gave a little a version of his sermon that the children could understand, and he had a prayer, and he said goodbye. He said, I'll be back, and I'll, we'll have service again next Sunday, and he walked eight hours back home. The next Saturday, he walked up there again, hoping that perhaps the children would bring their parents, but just the opposite happened. The parents wouldn't let the children come. And when he walked through the village, it was obvious that they were cold toward him. They were upset. They weren't happy that he was there. The children had told them, evidently, what he had been speaking about. And he went to sleep that night. The next morning, he got up, and he got out to the place where the service would be held, and nobody came, not even the children. He preached his message. He sang a song. He led a prayer. And then he walked eight hours back home. He did that every Saturday and Sunday for a year. And nobody came to the service. He walked eight hours. He walked into the village giving invitations. He slept overnight under the stars. He went and conducted a service every Sunday for a year. Nobody came. And shortly after that year was up, he got done preaching one Sunday and he said a prayer and he was, he was walking toward the path, toward home. And somebody stepped out from behind the brush. They startled him and then they said to him, does the God you serve really do what you say he can do? He said, I've been listening to you preach for the past number of weeks. I've heard you talking about this Jesus doing miracles. Is that really true? And Paulo said, yes, my Jesus can do miracles. He said, will you come into the village and pray for my son? My son has never walked. My son is 12 years of age. And he walked into this little village hut, and there on the ground was laying a little boy who had never walked in his life. And Paulo bent down and just simply prayed a prayer over that young child. There was no initial obvious response, and he said goodbye, and went back out and walked eight hours back home. The next Saturday, he walked again, and as he walked into the village, people started running toward him. And they said, you've got to see that little boy. And when he got to that little hut, that boy was standing. That boy was walking slowly around the inside of that house. And over the next number of weeks, that child began to grow muscle and tissue and sinew on that leg. And over a period of months, that child was able to walk normally and run. And you know what happened. People started coming every Sunday more and more and more until over 300 people from that village were worshiping every Sunday, honoring Jesus, because some young man named Paulo 
heard the voice of the Lord, was tuned in and listening, knew that he was supposed to go to Nagali, and then kept up and didn't give up. I want to tell you today that you and I are the beneficiary, the recipient. We're living the legacy of people who kept up and didn't give up. It's a joy to see the Lafferty's here today. I didn't know them real well growing up. That's uh, Miss Marsh's parents. You probably know that. But I know that they're part of a generation of leaders in our movement. They gutted it out when things were hard and things were tough. When resources were limited and tight, when the ridicule of people for being a Pentecostal was sharp. My mom and dad were in that pioneering class. One of your former pastors, Jerry Hall, was in that class. People who just kept up, they wouldn't give up. And you and I sit in beautiful facilities like this, with a nice campus like this on a main street in town. And rarely do we recognize, rarely do we consider that people who went before us just didn't give up. They kept up. And I want to ask you, teenagers and children and young adults and middle-aged folks, and seniors, would you help us move the church of Jesus Christ forward to the next level in this community? Would you help us by capitalizing on your capacity so that in your neighborhood, in your, the part of town where you live, in your extended Philly, the place where you work, the message of Jesus can go forth more powerfully. The simple question I close with today is derived from our passage. And that is, are you prepared for what God has prepared for you? Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. Are you prepared for what God has prepared for you? Trusting him to show up every day. Tuning in and listening up. We all get distraction. There's static in our radio, the radio of our life, every day of our life. And are you going to take action and keep up? It may take a year's worth of eight-hour walks, two days every weekend. But God, I'm going to get it done. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. Would you stand with me this morning as we move toward a conclusion? And I want to ask a simple question today and uh, give you an opportunity to respond. And that question is this. If, if you don't feel prepared for what God has prepared for you, would you like us to pray with you about that today? Would you like to have a greater confidence in your heart and a greater dependence habitually upon trusting God to show up where you are in your world? Would you like to be more tuned in to the voice of God, more disciplined in 
communication with him, conversation with him, so that when he speaks, you can recognize it and say, speak, Lord, your servant's listening. Or maybe it's this matter of taking action and keeping up. Maybe like me, you're one of those persons and the Lord's directed you to do something and you just didn't get it done. You know what? Peter said he's patient. He's patient. He'll probably give us another opportunity with that same person. But you and I have got to be willing to take action and keep up. If one of those three or a combination of them is going through your heart and your mind today, you see, you know what, I'd love, I'd love to be more trusting that God's with me every day in my world, more tuned in on a regular basis, and, and be more faithful in taking action. I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are and just come and stand across the front of this auditorium. We're going to finish today praying for you, praying that the Holy Spirit will bring a newness and aliveness to your life, that there'll be a greater recognition of God's capacity through you. Perhaps you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You need the gifts of the Holy Spirit to operate in your life in a more active way. Wisdom and knowledge and prophecy, discernment. Whatever it is, you're saying, God, I'm available. I'm listening. I want to be, I want to be at that level you want me to be. I, Lord, want to fill your, fulfill your will for my life today, your destiny. We're going to pray in just a moment, but I want to invite to this altar, anybody that's in this room, you'd say, Pastor Jim, I'm not walking with the Lord today. I told you about Tyrone, the friend I met in California. I told you about young Julia who came to Jesus. I told you about that village that came to faith in Jesus. If God will cause a person to get up and walk eight hours a day, two days a weekend, to preach the gospel to people that he loves, can I tell you, he loves you. And he wants you to be in relationship with him. If you're in this room today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I'd like to invite you to our time of prayer. Just come forward here, and if you'll get my, uh, make eye contact with me, I'll be sure we get somebody uh, nearby to pray with you. Is there anybody like that? You say, I, I need to be in a relationship with Jesus. I know I'm not where I need to be. I want to confess my sin. I want him to come into my life. I want him to be my Lord, my Master, my Savior. If you're like that, we invite you to come right now so that we can pray with you. You've been listening to a sermon from Louisville First Assembly. For more information, visit www.firstagonline.com. That's www.firstagonline.com.